friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. All right, good morning, church. Good morning, church. Hey, cat. Third time's a charm. Good morning, church. Thank you. So happy that you guys are here this morning. As you guys make your way back to your seats, if you are new here or I'm an unfamiliar face, my name is Chase Dewey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, getting to preach is not a frequent thing for me, but I love it. I'm a Bible nerd. I love doing this stuff. So today we're going to be preaching out of 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I'll have the verse on the screen, but if you guys want to turn to that in your Bibles uh, or on your phones, however you want to do that, please do that now. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits in things taught by demons. Such teachings come through, through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Here, Paul is writing a letter to his beloved disciple, Timothy. And while studying this passage, I was able to use Patrick Schreiner's, he's an author, but Patrick Schreiner's new resource called The Visual Word, it's amazing, I'm plugging him, it's awesome. If you're a Bible nerd, get it, but The Visual Word by Patrick Schreiner. And in it, Schreiner says the main theme of 1 Timothy is to guard the deposit that was given to him. Paul was urging him to guard the deposit. Because false teachings in that day could seep into the church and eat away at its roots. And that's exactly what's going on in today's passage. Amidst cultures clashing and false teachings of asceticism, Paul is urging Timothy to hold fast to what is true. This sets us up for what I believe is an incredibly relevant message for our beautiful com community here in Oklahoma City. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit is wanting to speak to us. Amen. At first glance, there's a lot going on in this text that may not seem super compelling for a 2021 American, but I promise you there's substance there. In reality, there's a lot to this. T Paul is addressing false teachings that are being taught by those whose consciences have been numbed by deceiving spirits. I practice that line so many times because I could not say conscience is seared, so I changed it to mind-numbed. But um, in other words, yeah, their minds have been numbed through following deceiving spirits. 
And it is important to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And Timothy was asked to wage war against the teachings, not the teachers themselves. He was asked to fight deception with truth. Which moves us in to uh, a little background, a little historical background to who Paul was urging Timothy to oppose. And that was the Gnostics. And these false teachers were mostly, most likely promoting some sort of Gnosticism. And Gnostics believed that salvation came through a secret knowledge. Secret knowledge, which led to forms of asceticism, which if you're like me, that word didn't mean anything to you a few days ago. Asceticism is basically full-on withdrawal from indulgence. It's, it's denying, it's rejecting things that God has deemed good. And in an effort to do that, that secret knowledge that these people had, they couldn't agree. The Gnostics couldn't agree on anything, which is interesting. They all had secret knowledge, but their secret knowledge was the right secret knowledge, you know? So they're telling, they're telling people, hey, don't get married. It's bad. Hey, don't eat certain foods. It's bad. And in the text, that's actually what they're talking about. They're talking about abstaining from foods in marriage. And here's the conflict. What is good and who defines it? Who defines what is good? Which takes me to my favorite part of the Bible. Genesis 1, the first page of your Bible, if you flip to that, there is a battle of goodness being waged. And on the first page of your Bibles, you'll read that God has created humankind and commissioned them to partner with him in ruling over his creation. And if you look at Genesis 1.29, this is what God says after he creates man. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth in every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And what did God call this? Audience participation. He called it good. God called it good. And then in so God abundantly provides all trees, plants, and fruits for the humans to eat. And then the interesting thing here is God is the definer of good. All throughout Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. That goes on seven times. It's good. That is what God does. He creates good things. And then you flip to chapter 2, and God says something is not good. So now this is the first time we read in our Bibles, if we're reading it as a narrative, this is the first time that something is not good. And what is not good is man's aloneness in the garden. Man was alone. He didn't have a helper. He named all the animals, but he didn't have a helper. God said that's not good. His aloneness was not good. But again, I'm going to ask audience participation, who is defining what is good and what is not good? God. God is the definer of what is good and what is not good. And tragically, in the next chapter, the human sees the opportunity to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad and attempts to become like God, which was ironic because they were already created in his image. They wanted to define what is good and what is not good. That's what they did. Desire took over and they took control. And ever since that day, that's what we've been doing as human beings. We've been defining what is good and what is not good. And this is why is it extremely, this is why it is extremely important 
to understand the narrative of Scripture. Paul, a very educated man, especially in the Torah, knew this. And it was because of these verses in Genesis that Timothy had even a basis to reject the false teachings of the day. Nowhere in the scripture or in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul and Timothy so passionately defended is there a warrant to believe that marriage is bad or that certain foods are bad. You won't find that. Abstaining from those things do not get us closer to Jesus, but rather they distract us from the truth. The false teachings directly oppose what God had deemed good. This desire to be definers or judges of what is good is, and what is not good is what is leading human beings to creating rules. We have a love for creating rules as human beings. We want to add to the law in order that we may have a better control over outward behavior, but our hearts remain unchanged. Look back at the second half of 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. These things being taught as not good were to be received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth. What is the truth? And in an effort not to go too deep here, because we could, but in an effort not to go too deep here, the truth is that God has created marriage and foods as good and to be received with thanksgiving, not the other way around, not to be rejected and called not good. And here's just a simple takeaway from today's message. If God calls something good, it's good. Okay? If God calls something good, it's good. And what this doesn't mean, just, this is my one precursor, what this doesn't mean is if you're single, you're bad. Or if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or any other tarian, you're bad. That's not what this means. If you went to the gluten-free station this morning to take communion, welcome to Skyline, we love you. That's beautiful. You got to partake in the Lord's Supper. That's amazing. Those things are not inherently bad. But these things become dangerous in the church when human ideals and laws become the secret knowledge that make us better than our neighbor. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's really good. Paul wrote it. I didn't. 1 Corinthians 8.1. Guess what he's talking to the Corinthians about? Whether or not it is good or bad to eat certain foods. Foods that were being sacrificed in the temple, which was the ancient day Walmart. Is it okay to eat of that, or should we starve? Paul's saying, no, it's good. It's not bad. It's good. The, are you tracking with that? It's good. And this is what legalism looks like. Legalism opens the door to elitism, division, and the cop-out of outer performance, which allows us to build walls of hostility amongst one another and leave our souls malnourished and in need of repair. Today's secret knowledge of better ways to live are disguised, as promoting, disguised and promoted as righteousness. Theologian Robert Olson uh, he wrote this amazing book I had to read called The Story of Christian Theology. It's giant. Amazing book. Uh, I'm plugging another book. But he talks about the Gnostics. And he says that Gnosticism is a leech to the underbelly of Christianity. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that as long as there is Christian life, there will be Gnostic teaching, secret knowledge 
that's being taught as the right way. Tracking? Does that make sense? As long as there's Christian life, there are going to be false teachers. And, and, and their aim, whether they know it or not, maybe their minds have been seared like by hot irons, like Paul said. They don't know what they're doing. They're just promoting demonic propaganda. And it's to distract us from the main thing. I was talking with Jonathan uh, with, about this verse, and he boiled it down to this. And this is why Jonathan is so amazing at his job. He says, legalism reduces worship. Legalism reduces worship. How does it reduce worship? Well, when we add laws, two outcomes occur. Either you obey the rules and you're a good boy, or you disobey the rules and you're bad. And shame comes upon you. And at worst, you're cast out. Aloneness. Both following and breaking laws put a mirror in front of us. And the reactions are either, I look really good, or I can't look at myself. Legalism makes us the center of attention. And while it does that, it divides us as well. Good and bad. We become the definers of what is good and what is bad, based on rules that we create. But our focus was never meant to be on us. We have been too distracted by our own self-righteousness or self-pity that we have lost sight of the one that is good. When we become consumed by legalism or reject what God has called good, the outcome is usually drifting. And when we drift, we disconnect. And when we disconnect, we become vulnerable and isolated and are at the mercy of the false teachings from the deceiving spirits that seek to numb our minds and get us off track. Skyline... What are the laws and better ways of living that have distracted us from the main thing? In what ways have we withdrawn from the good things that the Lord has created for us to enjoy and to thank him for? False teachers today, these are just a few examples. They're not all of them. But these are just a few examples of false teachers today may promote certain church doctrines as better than others or preach nat nationalistic rhetoric that comes from talking heads that we see on TV. Or social media, for that matter. I'm going to throw that one in there. Others may preach individuality and the importance of uniqueness or personal brand, which elevate the self over others. Finally, there's other false teachers that want to emphasize a deconstructionist view that aims to bulldoze the church in its entirety, as we know it. And rebuild with fragmented pieces of what makes us feel good and comfortable. And before we know it, we are like the man in Genesis 2. Alone, and that is not good. This unfor Oh, I just read that. <laughs> I just read that sentence. My point is that these things are not bad in and of themselves. It is not bad to know and love church doctrine. It is not bad to be a proud American. It's not bad to love the goodness within yourself, to love what God created you to be. It's, it's not bad to constantly be growing and learning and stretching in our understandings of who God is. Those things are not bad, but they do become bad when they become the truth in which we find our hope. And all these things highlight 
our desire to be in control. And that's why it's so appealing, but it's also why it's so destructive. When we are in control, we become wonderful judges and critics while simultaneously becoming terrible worshipers and looking less and less like Jesus Christ. When we are in control, we become wonderful judges and critics while simultaneously becoming terrible worshipers and looking less like Jesus Christ. We become the definers of what is good and what is not good. And the world needs Christians who live like they really do have good news to offer, not just good rules to follow. We know the truth, that everything that God has created is good. The truth releases us into freedom and thrusts us into perpetual, never-ending praise and thanksgiving. We should be amazed and in awe of what God has done. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. You're good. You're so good. Thank you. That should be our response to everything. You're good. These are the phrases that we should be uttering forever and ever because he is good and he has given us the ability to know the truth in our hearts and that truth transforms us. And it transforms us by beholding him. And his spirit sets us free to enjoy all things that he has created. This, my friends, is very good news. I'll take the liberty of saying that's good. Good news. The band can come back up if they'd like, I hope. Because I'm almost done. Jonathan sent me a quote this week. And I, I never thought to ask him who said the quote. Which is my bad and terrible preparation. So if this quote doesn't make sense to you, it's Jonathan's fault. Okay? And this quote is addressing the issues that arise in loving God's good creation. It says, even though each thing God made is good, delightful, legitimate, and a source of satisfaction as an object of our love, we must not expect more from it than its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Problems don't arise because we need things or because we love things or because of the things themselves that we love and need. Problems arise when we fail to grasp the nature of the objects that we love and need. The manner in which we love them and the expectations we have regarding the outcome of our love. Many of us fail to grasp the unique character of each object, the place it should hold, and the purpose it is to fill in our lives. When we fail to grasp what something truly is, we misplace it in our lives. And its purpose is never fully achieved. This leaves us feeling discontent, which is the opposite of thankfulness and worship, right? Discontent. If I'm remembering this right, our brothers and sisters in Dallas, Texas at Upper Room say that worship is agreeing with who God is. That's worship. And that leaves us with a choice. It's here that we find ourselves like Adam and Eve at the tree of knowledge of good and bad. We find ourselves with Paul and Timothy in regard to the church in Ephesus. A crossroads where we can either trust God 
hold fast to his way and allow him to define what is good and what isn't good. Or we can seize the opportunity for ourselves and become definers of what is really good or bad. In the end, one decision leads to life and the other leads us down a road that begins with legalism or rejection and it eventually ends with us being found exposed and alone. Brothers and sisters, resist the urge to listen to the siren songs of false teachers in our day. Commit your life to Jesus and trust that his way is better because it is. Enjoy God in his good creation and live lives defined by thanksgiving and praise. When we do this, surely goodness and faithful love will follow us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. We're going to worship now. Thank you for